you have a Bible with you, let me encourage you to open up to the book of Acts. So we are in Acts chapter 17, and you guys know tomorrow is a special day, right? It is Reformation Day. And so we are having a special message this morning out of the book of Acts in our verse-by-verse study, but we're going to be reminded a little bit about the Protestant Reformation today. And so the title for this morning's sermon is A Reformation in Berea, A Reformation in Berea. That's what we're looking at this morning. Acts chapter 17 will be in verses 10 through 15. And so we'll read what uh, Luke writes here and then we'll jump right into our message together this morning. Starting again, Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 10, we read this. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they had arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was being proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul, uh, those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. All right, let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. We do want to thank you for the joy of studying your word, of singing songs to the glory of Christ, our King, of celebrating today by way of this message and this week, the idea of the Protestant Reformation, rediscovering, being reminded of what the true gospel is. And we're thankful for how the church here in Berea, the the Jews who became Christians, uh, were careful and diligent to study your word to make sure the things they were hearing were indeed true. And so we're praying, God, that today you would bring reformation in our own hearts, that you would allow us to appreciate those who've gone before us, and that we would hold true to the faith, that we would hold true to your word, and that we would speak out openly and boldly and with great confidence in the the power of, of the scripture to give us understanding for how to face today's challenges. God, so thank you for the joy of studying this text together. May you be glorified in our time In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Martin Luther's last writing was a short message written on a slip of paper on the day before he died. It was found there on a table next to his deathbed. And you may ask, well, what was on that note that Luther wrote, the last thing we had recorded from him? And it was really just words of praise for the Bible and an appeal to read it with a humble spirit. And those are really fitting last words for a man whose adult life was marked by an intense love for the word of God. And long before his rediscovery of the gospel and long before his work as a reformer, Luther had embarked on a love affair with the Bible. But at the beginning of the 16th century, this was anything but typical. Far from our day in which the devotional reading of scripture, which is available in hundreds of versions and editions and is regularly encouraged in that day, few had access to scriptures in the common language. And what scripture they knew had largely been heard in a liturgy service at a church from the scripture, which was all recorded at that time in Latin. And so those who did have access to a Bible were not especially encouraged to read it. It was looked on by many as a dark and obscure book, one that needed expert guidance in order to understand it. Therefore, there is nothing unusual about Luther's claim that the first time he had ever even seen a Bible, when when he was at the university library in Erfurt, when he was 20 years old. At this time, he apparently read from the story of Hannah in 1 Samuel. From then on, Luther's interest in scripture was far more than academic. And it is also was not limited to the particular book of the Bible that he was lecturing on at the time. 
In a comment probably made in 1519, Luther remembers, and he tells a little bit about what he remembers from the scripture. He says, quote, I had then already read and taught the sacred scriptures most diligently, privately, and publicly for seven years. So I knew them nearly all by memory. So this quote indicates that throughout this period of Luther coming to Christ, leaving the Roman Catholic Church, spawning the Protestant Reformation, that he continued to read the scriptures devotionally as well, so much so that he had nearly memorized them. And this helps us to understand Luther's famous comment associated with his salvation experience. You say, what scripture actually was used by God to bring Luther to faith? Luther writes this. He says, I began to understand in Romans 1.17 that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives a gift of God, namely by faith. Here, I felt I was altogether born again and had entered into the gates of paradise itself through open gates. There are totally other face, uh, there are a totally other um, face of entire scripture showed itself to me. So remember Luther's testimony was he viewed God as a harsh God, a condemnatory God, a God who would only judge you. And he saw the face of God through scripture in this verse about the righteousness of Christ, that the just shall live by faith. And so Luther goes on to write, thereupon I ran through the scriptures from memory. I also found in other terms as an analogy, as the work of God is, that is what God does in us, the power of God in which he makes us strong, the wisdom of God in which he makes us wise, the strength of God, the salvation of God, and the glory of God. And so in that quote that he's reflecting on the first time he really understood Romans 1.17, Luther came to that conclusion based on reading it, discovering the true meaning by the power of the Holy Spirit, his own study, and then immediately comparing that with his breadth of knowledge throughout the whole Bible. And he realized this verse rings true. The righteous don't earn their faith by good works of penance. They don't earn their faith by keeping the sacraments. They're given faith as a gift. And it was this discovery that Martin Luther had that brought him to salvation and gave him such deep conviction that he had to let his fellow man also be taught correctly from Scripture. And the church didn't know what a lion they had let loose when they told Luther to study and to teach the Bible. Luther was not easily satisfied with others' answers to the deepest questions of theology. And so he took it upon himself to study and he meditated and he studied more until finally he was able to see the Bible taught that One is made righteous not by doing good works or by submitting to the teachings of the church. No, one is made righteous through faith alone in Christ. And it was by studying the Bible in depth and in its subsequent ministry that Luther became committed to the idea of sola scriptura. Sola Scriptura, as you know, is one of the five major doctrines of the Protestant Reformation. Those five doctrines would be Sola Scriptura, Sola Christus, Christ alone, Sola Fide, Faith alone, Sola Gratia, by grace alone, and Sola Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. Let's talk just for a moment about that first one, sola scriptura, or the scriptures alone. Sola scriptura never meant that human reasoning was irrelevant or that the church's tradition of doctrinal understanding shouldn't be taken into consideration. Instead, humility should lead us to consider the church's historical understanding of scripture as we seek to come to our own conclusions. But sola scriptura did mean that the Bible was the sole authority and the ultimate determination over our doctrine and over our practice. Other avenues of truth might be useful, but they are all inferior. They all sit below the one authoritative source of truth, the Bible. And sola scriptura indeed is the formal principle of the Protestant Reformation. And so Luther came to an understanding of sola scriptura in the midst of the disagreements with the Roman Catholic Church. 
And when he began his debate with Rome over the indulgences with his famous 95 theses, those arguments that he nailed to the German church door in Wittenberg on October the 31st, we're celebrating that tomorrow. Some of you are celebrating other things, but we're celebrating the Reformation tomorrow. That happened October 31st, 1517. Did you know what the first thesis said? There's 95 of them. The first one said this, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. So the Reformation really started with those 95 arguments, and the first one was defining what does the Bible teach about saving faith? It teaches repentance. And aided by Erasmus's 1516 publication of the Greek New Testament, Luther understood that the Roman Catholic doctrine of penance was built on an unbiblical foundation. This was largely because of a mistranslation of Jesus' words into a Latin rendition reading, do penance instead of repent. So the Roman Catholic Church was more into like doing works of penance as a part of your salvation and you can earn your way to heaven, whereas Luther rediscovered it's actually not saying that, it's saying repent. And to repent is to turn from your way of sin and turn to the way of Christ. It's a one-time event at salvation and then your whole life should model that repeatedly, repeated over and over again every time that we sin. And so he willed uh, that the, the entire life of believers to be that of, of, of repentance. This is what Luther is partly discovering and part of what he's attacking the Roman Catholic system at that time. Luther said that the Bible is what we are to look to, not to church tradition. Even if church tradition at that time spans over a thousand years, what we look to is the word of God and it must determine our doctrine and our practice. And so Luther's life was really radically transformed by scripture. Luther's life was, was transformed by the Holy Spirit opening his mind to the true meaning of the Bible. Luther's life was transformed by God's word, which cuts like a knife, which pierces like a sword, which purifies like a fire. And that same thing has happened to you this morning if you are in Christ today. If you're in Christ today, at some point in your life, you were raised in church, you visited a church, you had heard about Christ, and yet you needed a reformation. You needed a renewal. No, you needed to be regenerated from the inside out. And God has to open up your heart through his word so that you can see Christ for who he really is. You gotta come to that point in your life where you realize there is no good work I can do. There's no work of penance that I could commit that would somehow cause me to be worthy to be born again. It's all grace. It's all by faith. It's all through the scripture in Christ for God's glory. If you're, if you're saved this morning, that's happened to you. At some point, there was that dawning upon your own soul where God opened your eyes to the beauty of the scripture. And he might have used Romans 1.17. He might have used John 3.16. He might have used John 14.6. I don't know what verse he used with you, but he used a verse to quicken your spirit and to help you see it's all about Christ. And just like the Reformation, which began 505 years ago, as, as, the, as the church turned back to Scripture, we see a similar thing this morning in Berea. In our passage today, we're going to see how these same Jews had been mistaught and now have been refocused on what it was that Paul was teaching. And as they began to search the scriptures to see if these things are true, they came to saving faith. It was really a reformation that was happening in Berea. And so this morning, I want, to see, I want you to see three things about this Berean reformation. Number one, we're going to look at the arrival of the missionaries into Berea, verse 10. Number two, the reception of the word in Berea, verse 11. And then number three, the impact of the ministry in Berea, verses 12 through 15. So let's start with number one, the arrival of the missionaries into Berea in verse 10. And if you're taking notes this morning, it simply says, Paul and Silas come to a new 
place. They come to a new place. If you've been tracking with us through our study in the book of Acts, Paul is on his second missionary journey. And on this journey, he's been traveling from place to place, sharing Christ and preaching the gospel. And as you might remember just from last week, Paul had spent anywhere from three weeks to six months in Thessalonica. And as was his custom, Paul was in the synagogue. He was reasoning with them from the scriptures in Thessalonica. That's verses 1 through 9 that we looked at last week. He's reasoning with them through scriptures. This means that he was dialoguing with them. They, they were having conversations about the word and about Christ. And Paul was also explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to be crucified and to be raised from the dead. And this was done through the expounding, the explaining, and the expositing of scriptures. And Paul was likely proving the resurrection from Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, and Psalm 16. Paul was proclaiming that this Jesus was the Christ, that he, he was the Messiah, he was the anointed one. He was God's son who was sent to save his people from his sins. And some of the Thessalonians that we looked at last week, some of them were persuaded, but the Jews were jealous, and so they formed a mob. And they set the city into an uproar. And they attacked the house of Jason. And, and, and the Jews said about the apostles that these men have upset the world. Remember that from last week? And we said, you know, these men are seeking to turn the world upside right, but through the preaching of the word of God. And that's, that's what happens, though, when we hold to God's word. Don't, don't expect when you hold to God's word on the public square today for people to praise you and for people to adore you, and for people to invite you to come into their context. Unless they're true believers, they're true believers, they want to hear what you have to say, and you have a platform with other believers. But in the public, in the world today, they hate the truth. They don't want to hear what you have to say. They, they, they stick their fingers in their ears. That's what happens when the word goes forth. That's what happens when light confronts darkness. That's what happens when truth exposes error. That's what happens when the good shepherd fights off the wolves. It's a fight. And at this point, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. We see that at the very end of verse 9. And when they had taken money and security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Verse 10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they had arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. So again, they were to escape by night. They were choosing not to stay there at this time. Uh, this, this, this is a time for them to transition to the next place in their missionary journey. So they're moving now from Thessalonica to Berea. Now, Berea is a terraced Macedonian town that was located about 45 miles southwest of Thessalonica. It was off the main road, and it was to the south of the Via Ignatia. It sat on a slope overlooking the Halcomon River and on the southernmost pass to Mount Fermion. Today, it's known as Verea. A traveler heading to Athens from the north would pass through this road that would likely travel through this little town of Berea. So they're heading to a new place. They're moving from Thessalonica. They're moving towards Athens. And this is where this context takes place at a new place called Berea. Their next blank says, Paul and Silas preach the same message. They, they may be coming to a new place, but they're preaching the same message. And we get that again from verse 10 when it says, when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. This was their custom. When they arrived in Berea, just as if they, when they arrived in Thessalonica, just like when they arrived on the second missionary journey, they've already been to Derby, Lystra, Galatia, Troas, Philippi, and just now Thessalonica. And if there was a synagogue in the town, Paul started his ministry there. Otherwise, he would open air, have ministry, maybe next to the river, like he did in Philippi. And while Paul is in a new place, we're just saying there's no doubt that he's preaching the same message. And verse 11 gives us that indication as well. Now, when these Jews, who were more noble than those in Thessalonica, they received the word 
with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. This idea of they received the word means that while we're not taught exactly what Paul preached, we know he's preaching truth from God's word. We can assume that Paul's preaching the same message that we've been hearing from him throughout the first and second missionary journey. And what was that, you ask? What was he preaching on this journey? Well, in the longest sermon recorded by Paul, if you remember, on his first missionary journey, he was saying things like this out of Acts 13, 38, and 39 in Pisidian Antioch. He preached a message where he said, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man... Speaking of Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything with which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. That's Paul's message. He's saying, hey, this man, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the one who gives you forgiveness. And everything that the law could never set you free from, this man will set you free from because there's power in the name of Jesus Christ. And there's power under the blood of Christ that cleanses us from our sins. And whatever's been holding you back, whether it be legalism or whether it be the lust of the flesh, in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are made new. That's what Paul's preaching. And it was getting the ear of some people who were sitting there, sincere people who had a respect for God and knew that something was off with the law that was being taught. The focus had become somehow on mankind instead of on the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul was always pointing out to the Jews that they could never be saved through the old covenant, that they could never be saved through the law of Moses, that, the, that, that observing the dietary restrictions of the law would bring salvation to no one. They, they could never be saved by keeping the ceremonial law or by being circumcised. This is what Paul's message was from place to place to place, particularly when he was in the Jewish audience. Now, Paul would also be in the synagogue. In the synagogue, there were many Gentiles who would gather there who feared God, but Paul would also go out of the synagogue and talk to the rest of the Greeks that were in whatever town he was in. And when Paul was in Lystra, he would preach the gospel to the Greeks as well as the Gentiles, so much so that they thought gods had come down in the likeness of men, if you remember, and they thought Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes, but in Acts 14, 14 and 15, when the apostle Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you and we bring you good news. So they're saying, hey, look, we're bringing you good news. The miracles that we're performing are to point you to Christ. Don't think of us as being some God. You, you have to turn, they said in Acts 14, 15, that you would turn from these vain things to a living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. So Paul and Barnabas, and now on the second missionary journey, Paul and Silas are preaching the word to the church of Corinth. A little bit later, we would read where in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, Paul said, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Again, he's saying, it's not about the old covenant. It's not about what Moses did. There's a history there that's rich and that satisfies in the sense of the way it points us to Christ. It's healthy for us to study that, but you can't bank on that for your salvation. And, uh, you know, it didn't even save Jews in the Old Testament. It's always been by faith. It's always been by faith in the Redeemer who would come. And so in 1 Corinthians 9, 16, Paul said, for if I preach the gospel... That gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Again, I, th I just think this should remind us this morning that we too are from time to time in new places. Throughout your life, throughout your maturity, you're meeting new acquaintances, you're having new schoolmates, you're having new work associates, you have new neighbors. You're always going to be in a little bit of a new setting, no matter how old you are this morning or how many places you've lived in. There's always new spheres of influence where God places you, where you have an opportunity. You know, just recently, our, one of our kids has been playing football on Saturdays, and I've been talking to some of the dads at the football game. 
And I got this one dad I got my eyes on. I'm like, you know what, that guy, I'm gonna go after him for the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I, I am just now uh, pre-evangelizing him. We've been talking, we've been building some rapport, and I'm gonna go after him next week. So you guys pray for me uh, because I've built the foundation and this guy's got it coming next week. But the point is we all have, we all have new opportunities of influence. And the question is, are we proclaiming the same message? It's the same message. It never gets old. It never gets boring. It never gets tired. What is that message? It's all about the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in order for people to appreciate that good news, we must proclaim that heaven is real. Hell is hot. We must proclaim that Jesus died and he rose again. We must proclaim that Jesus saves all who will repent and believe in him. And that's exactly what Paul's doing in Berea. Even though the text doesn't say all that, we can rest assured that as we're moving through and seeing his regular message, that's what he's been preaching at Berea. And so now that we've seen this arrival of the missionaries to Berea, let's look at number two, the reception of the word in Berea. In verse 11, we can find four things we could learn from the Bereans. And number one, or A in your outline, they studied the scriptures openly. They studied the scriptures openly. Again, verse 11 says, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So four things, this is the heart of the message really, four things that we want to learn from that famous verse, from that encouraging verse. How many Sunday schools have been named after the Bereans? How many adult Bible fellowships over the years have been like, oh, we go to the Berean Bible study? And this is where it all comes from. It's because of these four things that we learn from the Bereans all in verse 11. Again, they studied the scriptures openly. This verse says that the Jews in Berea, it says that they were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Some commentaries, some believe this to mean that these Jews were of a more noble birth. Somehow that they had hierarchy or rank in their birth. I don't believe that that's what Paul is talking about, and I could be wrong, but I don't believe that this is what he's talking about. I think he's talking about that they are more noble-minded, that they are more noble-minded. This verse is uh, comparing the worshipers in Berea and in that synagogue with the worshipers in Thessalonica, and those in Berea are more noble. Uh, again, one commentary writes it this way, quote, The word, meaning the word noble, that I'm saying is noble-minded, not just their status of birth, this word originally meant high-born, but came to have a more general connotation of being open, tolerant, generous, having the qualities that go with good breeding. Nowhere was this more evident than in their willingness to take Paul's scriptural exposition seriously. And so I think that that commentator uh, in my limited study is I appreciate that angle of saying, hey, they're more noble-minded. They're open. They're generous with understanding and appreciating what's being taught. And yet we know that throughout this verse that they're comparing what they're learning with Scripture. And so this quote is really saying the Bereans had a teachable attitude. Their hearts were open, not closed. They were soft, not hardened. They were interested, not turned off. And here is the first step of really becoming a Berean would be being a good student of the Bible. It would be to approach God's word with humility. Like what we read in Psalm 119. It's that we would approach God's word. In fact, turn with me, hold your place here. Go back to Psalm 119 where you know it's the longest chapter in the Bible and every single verse pretty much points to some aspect of the word of God. And to be a good Berean, you have to approach the Bible with that kind of eagerness, or or that's gonna be our second point, but that kind of openness and nobility towards a high regard and respect for God's word. And no place in the Bible, I think, does it as good as Psalm 119. Look at verse 12, Psalm 119, verse 12. He says, blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. Kind of see that in the Bereans. They're like, hey, teach us what you have to say. Look at verse 18. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. So again, the law points us to Christ. So even though we like to study the law, remember it's a tutor to point us to Christ and there's still beautiful things in the law of God. Verse 27, verse 27 
the psalmist writes, make me understand the way of your precepts and I will meditate on your wondrous works. Look at verses 33 through 36. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Skip down to verse 66. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. How about verse 125? I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. I think these kind of prayers in Psalm 119 ought to be coupled together with Bible study every day. We we should be opening God's word and praying these prayers like what we read in Psalm 119. God, teach me. Teach me your statutes. God, open my eyes. God, give me an understanding. God, incline my heart to your testimonies. God, give me delight in your word. And the Bereans were more noble-minded because they received the word preached by Paul and Silas in this way. They, They had an open heart. They were ready to hear because they're proclaiming to be preaching scripture, Old Testament pointing to Christ as the savior of the world. And they're saying, God, open our eyes. We wanna see what is in your word and we wanna know Uh, you through the scripture. And that's one thing that we can learn from the Bereans. The second thing that we can learn from them is that they studied the scriptures eagerly. They studied them eagerly. So these were of more more noble. I'm saying that 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 demonstrates an openness, open-minded, noble-mindedness. They received the word, it says there in the second part of verse 11, with all eagerness. Uh, This word eagerness means to have an exceptional interest in. It means to be willing to be in service to. It means the desire to be engaged in some events. And the event we're talking about here is the study of the word of God. They wanted to know the scripture. The Bereans were desperate to know and to understand the Bible. This word eagerness also carries the idea of rushing forward. They could not wait to understand scripture Eagerness makes all the difference in the favor, the quality, and the nobility of our Christian lives. And the Bereans were serious about what they were learning. This is exactly what we read about Ezra in Ezra 7.10, that he set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach its statutes and its rules in Israel. Uh, we, We see there Ezra took the time He was committed to hard work. He he set his mind to focus on the law of God. He was committed to studying it, to doing it, and to teaching it. Really what we're learning from the Bereans here is that deep study requires meditation. I mean, you've got to chew on it. We have to let it seep into our hearts, right? It's something that you can't just read and gloss over and rush off. You've got to read it and you've got to stop and think, what, do, what is God saying to me from Scripture? What is he saying about his character? What is he saying about his love for the lost? What is he saying about right doctrine? And how does that seep into practical aspects of, of life? We've got to let it seep in. It's like, you know, it's getting colder outside. Some of you like uh, tea more than coffee. I don't know why, but some of you do. And so the idea is you get that hot cup of water and you put the little tea bag in, right? And as the tea bag comes in, all the tea starts coming out. It begins to permeate. And that's the idea of just kind of meditating on, letting it soak through you. Some of you like to barbecue and you marinate that brisket overnight or those burgers or the chicken or whatever. I don't, I don't really know how to cook very well, but you marinate it. You put it in that, in that stuff, right? And it sits there overnight. So when you put it on the barbecue, on the grill, it's like, it's like all through it. And we're just saying that to meditate, to let this flavor of God's word and his truth begin to permeate every part of your life. This is the idea of studying, that the eagerness of being immersed in the word and be looking at it and thinking about it. And I think Joshua 1.8, probably my favorite book about meditating, my favorite verse about meditating, this book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate on it 
day and night, so that you might be careful to do according to all that's written in it, then you'll have prosperity and success. And that prosperity and success is, I think, talking about spiritual prosperity, uh, victory over sin, a successful God-honoring marriage, not just talking about money, money, money is mine if I meditate on scripture. He said, no, your walk with Christ will grow and you will excel in your love for, for God and your, your love for his word. And you have to study the word with eagerness in order to, to understand it and to defend it. I mean, how else are you gonna defend the, the scripture? We talk about 1 Peter 3.15, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with all gentleness and respect? Well, how can you defend the word of God if you don't study it? You gotta study it so that you have a confidence in Christ, in scripture, in the inerrancy and fallibility, the sufficiency of scripture. It was Charles Ryrie who said, the Bible is the greatest of all books. To study it is the noblest of all pursuits to understand it, the highest of all goals. Charles Spurgeon said, remember Christ's scholars must study upon their knees. D.L. Moody said, merely reading the Bible is no use at all without studying it thoroughly and hunt it through, as it were, for its great truth. You know, I just pray that we as Christians who value God's word would just spend time studying God's word. Oh, that churches would be filled with people longing for more biblical food than for your typical Sunday morning cotton candy entertainment, funny stories and pithy anecdotes. May God give us a, a Berean appetite for the scripture. And I hope that studying the word of God would be true in my heart and your heart with that same kind of eagerness. And so the Bereans studied the scriptures openly. They studied them eagerly. Number three, or C in your outline, they studied the scriptures carefully. They studied them carefully, it says, examining the scriptures. And so Luke commends the Bereans for their spiritual discernment. They, they weren't gullible. They listened to Paul and then they proceeded to do their own homework. They examined Paul's claims about the Messiah, and then they looked to the Bible to see whether or not these things were true. It's easy to be drawn in by a charismatic teacher. In fact, Paul rebuked the Galatians for accepting the false gospel from false teachers rather than weighing their message against the word of God. And the Bereans provide us for, with a positive example of examining what has been taught. And we certainly see a, a clear example in another portion of Scripture. In fact, turn with me to 1 John. 1 John chapter 2 gives us another way to kind of work through the importance of examining the Scripture. Remember in 1 John, Gnosticism had set in. People were saying that Christ wasn't truly God, that somehow he was maybe a created being that was holy but not uh, not not truly fully divine. And so in 1 John, uh, John is writing to fight that argument. And I just want you to see a little bit of his argument here, 1 John 2.18 and following, 1 John 2.18 and following. He says, children, in this last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come, therefore know that it is the last hour. So he's saying Antichrist there is a phrase to refer not only to the future coming Antichrist, but to the smaller ongoing Antichrists, anybody who would say that Christ is not truly divine, that he's not God's son. And so he's addressing that. Verse 19, he says, they went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have knowledge. So he's saying, look, some people are going to leave, but you have, if you're a true believer in Christ, you have an anointing. And in this passage, the idea of anointing is not a special above and beyond normal Christian gift. It's for every Christian. It's for every Christian whose mind has been open to the scripture, has been anointed 
capable of understanding what it is that Scripture teaches. And he says, you got to know what the truth is. You have to have knowledge, the end of verse 20 and then 21. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. And so he's like, hey, I'm writing to you Christians because you have this anointing and you have the right knowledge and don't be intimidated by those who say you don't. Verse 22, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. And so he's saying, hey, you have salvation in Christ. You know that Jesus really is divine. And anybody else who says anything against that truth is an antichrist. No one who denies the son, verse 23, has the father. Whoever confesses the son has the father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the son and in the father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. It's basically saying the true Christian cannot be deceived. The true Christian in the true word has the anointing and you don't need somebody to teach you. He's saying, it's not saying it's not important for us to sit under the preaching of the word. He's saying no person can ultimately teach you. God has to open your heart and mind to these truths about Christ. And anybody who says anything else about Christ, you're not to follow them. So when people in today's world say anything that Christ isn't divine, he's not the only way to heaven, he would allow you to do what you want, That's not the Christ of Scripture. And so at that moment, they've denied Christ's divinity. They've denied the fact that he's one with the Father. They've denied the fact that that's the truth. And you have to have the discernment to know that. And the way that you know that is through God's word. The way that you'll be able to discern, is this person teaching truth or error? What does this person say about Christ? What does this person say about Scripture? What does this person say about true repentance and faith? And by doing that, truth, you know, is contained in God's Word. The Scriptures are what point us to the Father. The Scriptures are what point us to His Son, Jesus Christ. And all who have this anointing have been taught by the Scriptures, and we are to abide in Christ. We're to abide in Him, to walk with Him. He remains in us, and we remain in Him. And what you'll find is that most people who reject this, this simple biblical Christianity, most people who reject the gospel have little knowledge of the scriptures. I mean, some of the Bible's harshest critics over time have displayed a shocking ignorance of what it actually teaches. You ever had somebody tell you, oh, the Bible's not true? And you're like, oh, oh really, why, why do you think that? Well, I, I heard you know, a professor say, or I, I, I heard people say it's not true. Well, well, what do you think about it? Well, I've actually never read the Bible. Okay, so you're gonna sit, tell me it's not true where you don't have true knowledge of what the Bible even says. And, and all I'm saying is you can call them on that argument and just begin to say, have you ever read? Because the scriptures are true. And it's really only by getting somebody in the scriptures that turns them from being a critic to being a convert. We, we don't argue up here about the scripture so much as we argue, this is what God's word says. This is what he says about Christ. This is what he says about your condition. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We have to get them in the word. It's being in God's word that brings clarity, brings truth, brings conviction, brings grace, brings new life. It all comes through the word. That's why I love George Mueller. It was said of him that he read the Bible over two hundred times. Certainly a primary reason why he was such a man of faith. And all of us should be constantly reading and digging and cross-referencing and comparing and, and rushing with eagerness to feed on the Word of God. That's what the Bereans were doing. They took it seriously. They spent time in the Word. Verse 11 also tells us, number four, or D in your outline there, says that they studied the Scriptures daily. They studied the scriptures daily. Occasionally, we'll find some of our kids' Bibles from time to time that got home and they're still in the car from last Sunday. Occasionally, that's happened, particularly when they were younger. Has that ever happened to you? 
You got to find your Bible and you got to kind of dust it off. You kind of got home from church. You put it on its shelf. And then what happened to it during the week? And I love the fact that these Bereans were studying it every day. This group of people did more than study the Bible just on the Sabbath. They met every day. They, it reminds me of what we read about in the early church. Certainly you remember on the day of Pentecost after they repented and believed and were baptized, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers and all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were holding all things together in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to the proceeds to all as many had need. And then it says, and day by day, attending the temple together, And breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Just a a reminder that we're studying the Bible every day. Every day. And I'm not trying to say it's some type of dreary duty. I'm just saying it's the words of the living God that's available to us this very day. And because the word of the Lord was proclaimed to the Bereans and because what was being said to the Bereans had eternal implications, they were committed to studying it day after day after day. These Bereans were noble because they studied and examined the scriptures daily with an open mind. They wanted to see, as verse 11 says, if these things were so. And so they eagerly but cautiously listened, then compared everything to the touchstone of Scripture. Acceptance of these teachings without discernment and study is not an example of Christian virtue. Luke congratulated the Bereans because they avoided predigested food, choosing to hunt it out for themselves. That's what I love about Bible study. I mean, I love as the next guy, as much as the next person hearing MacArthur or Piper, whoever your favorite preacher is, and you're like, man, Alistair Begg, he's just so eloquent. He's got a great accent. And I could listen to some of these guys all day, but there's nothing. There's nothing like just opening up the Bible on your own on a weekday morning before work. Hopefully with a cup of coffee, not tea, right? You know, all right, whatever your beverage is. But you open up God's word and you're just like, God, speak to me this morning. I'm studying through Philippians or 1 Corinthians or Isaiah, wherever you are in your Bible study. And it's mining out those truths. It's those personal discoveries as God is speaking through his word that, that make you who you are. I mean, the, the people who go around quoting MacArthur and Piper and whoever, those are the people that kind of drive you crazy, Right? They're like, well, you know, so-and-so said, and you're like, shut up. You know, he's like, tell me what God's word says. If somebody comes to me and says, hey, this morning I was studying in Philippians and I learned this, I'm like, man, talk to me. Come on, pull up a chair. Let's have a talk. So what I'm saying is it's all about just being in the word of God. That's what these Bereans are doing. They they are cautious, because certainly we want to compare all those Bible teachers I just mentioned, every one of them, we should compare with scripture. Okay, that's what they said. What do I think? What does the Bible say? How do I come to to a a biblical, reasonable conclusion? Uh, And the Bereans, you know, they they were cautious, but they, they remained open. I like Kent Hughes and his commentary. He writes here, no one has ever had a silver tongue who did not have a golden ear. And he's saying, hey, look, these people speak with a silver tongue. They sound good and they are are good. So many of them are fantastic Bible teachers, but you better have a golden ear. You better be able to listen with that kind of integrity and that kind of diligence so to make sure that you're accountable to what God's word says. And some of the Jews in Thessalonica did not listen where it seems like more of the Jews in Berea did. The Christian life can be most stimulating if we allow ourselves to be open to learning and growth. We need to be continually immersing ourselves in the scriptures. God's word will keep us grounded. God's word will keep us growing and God's word will keep us in touch with the fundamental issues of life. 
And so we're seeing here again the arrival of the missionaries in Berea at this Reformation time for them, the reception of the Word of God in Berea, and now let's look at number three, the impact of the ministry, the impact of the ministry in Berea, 12 through 15. Your next blank says, many Jews and Gentiles believed. Many believed, verse 12, many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. And so what are the results of the preaching in Berea? Well, many of these Jews believed. And not only did many Jews believe, but verse 12 says many Greeks as well. And not just men, but Greek women of high standing. I love, again, the Bible elevating the value of many of these women with high standing. We, we had read earlier about how Lydia came to saving faith. Certainly, she was a woman of high standing in, in Philippi. And many of these Greek women here in Berea are coming to faith. There, there are leading women here in Berea who put their faith in Christ as well. And so, as you can see, a church is being born right here in Berea. And let, let this passage encourage you if you are a Bible teacher. Not, not everyone will be changed when you teach, but the seed of God's word will bear fruit in the lives of all of those that God calls to himself. Be reminded of 1 Corinthians 3, 6, and 7. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. And it was God who gave the growth in Berea. And while many believe, your next blank says, the Jews from Thessalonica came to cause trouble. They came to cause trouble, but when the days, or excuse me, but but when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitated, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Well, I mean, we've read that before, haven't we? Unfortunately, this great movement among the Bereans was disrupted because the Jews from Thessalonica traveled to Berea and stirred up one another again. They stirred up another mob against Paul. Uh, This is something that we saw throughout his first missionary journey. It's kind of like he goes to one place, lights it on fire, goes to the next place, starts to light this place on fire, and these people back here who didn't like it said, we're not done with you yet, and they hunt him down to try to persecute and stir up more trouble. Then he goes to the next town and they just keep chasing him, but they can't catch him, right? He just keeps going, keeps doing what God's called him to do. And so that's what's happening here. The Thessalonican unbelieving Jews come and cause trouble here in Berea. So in verses 14 and 15, we see Paul was sent to Athens, verses 14 and 15. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So your next verse says that they, uh, Paul was sent to Athens, and these verses tell us that while Paul was sent off, Silas and Timothy stayed behind. They were able to remain in Berea. No doubt they were to help with this new church plant, just like Luke had stayed behind in Philippi, and so uh, they are, these guys, uh, Silas and Timothy, are going to stay behind for a short time there in Berea. Now, whether Paul went to Athens by boat or by land is not clear. Some people say they went to take him to the sea, but then he snuck around by the road and went to Athens, and that was a trickery move by them. I'm just saying, whether they went by boat or sea, the important thing to remember is that they helped Paul get to his next assignment, which was to go to Athens, which is a really big deal. We're going to look into that next week as Paul preaches that famous sermon on Mars Hill in Athens. And, And Paul told the friends to instruct Silas and Timothy to join him in Athens as soon as possible. And if you were to cross-reference 1 Thessalonians 3, 1 through 2 and verse 6, it says that uh, Silas and Timothy did indeed join Paul in Athens in a short time. Well, the word of God is central in all of these occurrences. Paul and his companions have indeed turned the world upside down by turning the word loose. And we need to learn a great deal from their teaching and their evangelizing and the way they exalted Christ from Scripture. And we need to ask God to use us to be faithful ambassadors for Christ. And the way to be a faithful ambassador is to be a faithful student of the Word. We are to study the Word to show ourselves 
approved. And our, our time together today has been a reminder about sola scriptura. So I'm going to take the next 10 minutes and we're going to dive in that just a little bit more, okay? This, this huge doctrine of the church, uh, sola scriptura, from day one. Th- this was the rekindling doctrine of the Protestant Reformation of the 1500s. This same Reformation is exactly what happened in Berea. And the Bereans heard the gospel and preached and, 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 and they were open-minded and they received the word with eagerness and they examined the scriptures daily to see these, if these things were true. And my question to you kind of throughout the sermon has been, is that true of you? Are you experiencing a personal reformation? We can talk all day long about, man, that was awesome what the Bereans did. I want to be a part of the Berean Bible study to study and examine the scriptures to see if these things are true. We can be all excited to to read about Martin Luther and to watch that Luther movie that our youth have been enjoying in youth group on Wednesday nights. But if it's not bringing about a change of personal reformation in your own heart this morning to say, you know what, I've kind of been coasting. I kind of have the same the same spiritual discipline that I've had for a long time, maybe it's time for a little personal reformation. Wouldn't that be nice for you to have a personal reformation? So during our take-home section, I'll take just a couple more minutes than I usually do to examine this together. How do we do that? Well, take-home section says, Bible study should first be done with a repentant heart. If you want a reformation in your life, in your heart this morning, the prerequisite for true Bible study is always the confession of sin. This means that you should repent and put your faith in Christ. You must believe in the gospel. The kind of Bible study that honors God is not primarily done for academics only or history only or philosophy only. What I'm talking about here is Bible study that is done with a humble heart. It should be done with a holy motive. It should be done in order to love God more and to know him deeper and to glorify him more in your life. I love 1 Peter 2, 1 through 2. It says, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. So confess your sin, put it away. And then it says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. What I'm saying to you this morning is the thing that clouds our minds more than anything is sin. And when we're able to confess our sin, to be pure before God with a holy motive, God's word will begin to open up to you in ways that you've never seen before. And the problem is it's been clouded because of your own guilt and your own shame and your own confessed sin. It's impossible to study the scriptures without a pure mind. So we must confess our sin, we must be renewed in our hearts, we must long for the pure spiritual milk that by it we may grow up into salvation. The Bible is simple, the Bible is clear, and the Bible can be read and ingested by anyone who has a desire to learn. Second step for your personal reformation this morning is Bible study should be diligent and delightful. At times, we would all admit, it. It is hard to get up early if that's your habit. It's hard to stay up late. It's hard to get a focus, right? It's hard, it's hard work and focus in order to really understand the word. How many times have you been talking to someone and they said, man, I'm trying to read through Leviticus and I don't understand a thing. You know, I'm stuck in Isaiah and I am lost. You know, I'm stuck in 2 Thessalonians. I'm not sure what's going on. And, and it takes hard work, right? The Holy Spirit has to enlighten our minds but we also have to put in the hard work. And that's why 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul writes to Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. I just like that one phrase that stuck out to me, do your best. And I wonder if in your quiet time right now, your devotion time, your Bible reading, I wonder if you're doing your best I wonder if you're really being honest to say, you know what, I'm doing my very best that on a weekly basis, I give God the first fruits of my time and my energy because I want to know him and I want to know his word. I want to present myself to God as one that's been approved. I'm just saying, Bible study has to be diligent. It is hard work. It's about time and it's about commitment and it's about discipline. And I recommend having a good study Bible. 
A good study Bible is invaluable to any student of the word, that you would just start somewhere where you have good scripture. I mean, obviously the scripture's good at the top, and then you have good study notes at the bottom, all right? You want the scripture up here, study notes at the bottom as a reference tool. And then you better compare the study notes to what's going on up here, right? The study notes are not inspired. I don't care who wrote them, right? They're just tools that we use to help, help point us back to scripture so that we can come to a conviction based on our study of good words. I recommend a good study Bible. I recommend a few basic commentaries. If you really are reading through a particular book of the Bible, there's so many of those that that, that we can help you uh, purchase or, or, or Google it, and you can find so many. I, I recommend reading good books that are rooted and grounded in the scripture on certain topics like marriage and parenting that will help stimulate your spiritual growth. But at the end of the day, it better come back to the word. Right? At the end of the day, it always starts and ends with the scripture. It was Dale Moody again who said, I never saw a useful Christian who was not a student of the Bible. James Montgomery Boyce said, Bible study is the most essential, the most essential ingredient in the believer's life because it is only in the study of the Bible as that is blessed by the Holy Spirit so that Christians hear Christ and discover what it means to follow him. J.C. Ryle said, he that would be conformed to Christ's image and become a Christ-like man must constantly be studying Christ's himself. I just thought those quotes just inspire me. You know, it's like, I want to be like that, that kind of student. It's only about being diligent that you will be able to then delight. And that's what, where, I, where I put those two things together. And I, and I love how Piper so often in this ministry puts those two thoughts together. It's duty and it's delight. It's being diligent, but it's understanding that that's where my joy comes from. Are you delighting in God's word? Psalm 1-2 says, but, but, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and he meditates on it day and night. Psalm 119-97, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Um, Psalm 119.65, great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. I, I found that if you lack diligence and delight in studying God's word, then you commit it to a matter of prayer. That's you this morning. I remember as a young man, I'm like, man, I don't feel like studying the Bible. My parents are always telling me to read the Bible. My youth pastor always tell me to read the Bible. I was your typical kid. Sometimes I read it and sometimes I'm like, I don't feel like reading the Bible. And I remember really struggling in college. I'm like, what's wrong with me? Like, what's, why, why is, like, I, other people I admire, they seem to love their time in the Word. And it's like a struggle for me to be in the Word. And then I just started uh, being encouraged by someone to pray and ask God to increase your desire. And you know how the Bible says you have not because you ask not? And we typically think about that as money, money, money. It's all about money to, to uh, some people, right? And it's like, no, I, I think he's saying you have not because you asked night applies to all of your Christian life. And if part of your Christian life is God desires for you to commune with him through Bible study and prayer, and you are lacking that desire, I think that you should ask him for it. I think that you should ask and it will be given unto you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. And I think, again, we, we tend to think about, you know, certain special things that are our requests. Why not make it a bold, prominent request? God, would you just increase my passion for you every day? Lord, I don't want to read your word because I should, because I'm supposed to, I'm obligated to. I want to read it because I want to. Lord, change my desire transform my heart. Give me a hunger for your word. And I've been praying that prayer almost every day since I was a young man. And you know what? God has answered that prayer. It's a delight for me to study. I'm not trying to act like I'm perfect and, and you guys know I'm not. All right. But it is a delight to open God's word and just be like, oh, feed me. Oh Lord, feed me from your word. Let me encourage you to just make that your regular prayer as well. Number three, Bible study should transform you from the inside out. Right? Studying the word transforms the whole person. Everything that you are, you're to devote yourself to it. And there's a couple of verses there. It reminds us even James 1.22, be doers of the word and not hearers only. If we're really being transformed, it's that doctrine that produces practice. Or orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. The idea that as you study, it transforms you. It sets you free from 
ongoing sin, it gives you a greater view of Christ in heaven, and it leads you to the right practice to do what it is the Word says. That's the, 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 the part of the transforming work of Scripture, is that you read it enough, you study it enough, you begin to walk in it. And then last, Bible study should be something that you share with others. Something that you share with others. We should eagerly, every day, desire to share with others what we're learning from God's word and how he's growing us. I mean, you can't help but to share with others what you're learning. You, you can't keep it to yourself. Like any good news, you want to share it with your loved ones and with your friends. I, I love Peter in Acts 4.20, for we cannot help but speak of what we've seen and what we've heard. And as you spend time seeing Christ in scripture and hearing from the Holy Spirit as he speaks through scripture, you can't help it to share that with somebody. You can't keep it to yourself. And so the Bereans experienced a reformation by looking to God's word. Martin Luther led a reformation by rediscovering God's word. Won't you let that same reformation take place in your heart this very day? You're here and you don't know Christ. What a great day to come to the saving faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. After we sing our last song, we'll have a few people available right here next to this door. We would love to tell you how you could come to a personal relationship of repenting of your sin and knowing Christ as your Savior. If you're here today and you're a believer and something in God's Word touched your heart this morning and you just want to talk with somebody or pray with somebody, I'm always available out there. We have people available right here. We'd love to talk to you about how you can have a personal reformation with God by having your heart tuned right to Scripture. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning, thank you for the opportunity to just take our time and work through the beautiful story of what happened in Berea. We're so thankful for Paul's diligence to go and preach the word there yet again on the run from Thessalonica on his way to Athens, and yet took the time in this one town that for the rest of our days, those of us who've been in church and around the scripture probably heard, you know what, you need to be a good Berean. And now we've seen with great interest what that means that we would listen to your word, that we would have open hearts, that we would examine it to see whether or not these things are so, that we would have careful Bible study, and that we would do it daily. And so I pray, God, that we would have great encouragement today. I pray that we would draw great strength today from this passage. I pray that as we discuss it together with families and in small groups and even here after church, that you would light our hearts on fire we're so thankful for the love that you've shown to us through Christ. And we pray that we would walk hand in hand each day with you. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.